Jones, Australia's leading voice. Good evening. <laughs> Thank you for being with us again. I know what you're saying. Oh my God, look at that. Anyway, we're trying, make an effort, brighten up the day. Thank you for the response, by the way, to the Peter Dutton interview last night. There have been many, many positive comments. Look, forget the polls. Dutton is the one person who'll prosecute the failures of the Albanese government and Bowen should be in the firing line, this energy policy and the demonisation of coal and the belief that carbon dioxide, which is 0.04% of the atmosphere, what? How stupid do I think we are? Is going to bring the world to an end. It's a monumental hoax. Dutton has to prosecute this and he knows it. Well, politics is everywhere. I wish I could say it was good news. The West Australian Premier McGowan has resigned, as you know, and said he was exhausted. That's most probably a euphemism for saying, because of my political success, I can get a job away from Parliament that would pay me three times as much. You watch, in a couple of weeks, he won't be exhausted. But here the Labor Party is in full cry. Roger Cook will be the next Premier of WA. Who decided? Well, it's the Labor Party. The Australian Manufacturing Workers' Union, along with the United Workers' Union. They decided who'd be the Premier. They told the lady, Amber Jane Sanderson, that Cook had the numbers. He had the union's endorsement. What sort of show are we running here in WA where the state's next Premier is decided not within the halls of the WA Parliament, but by securing approval from major unions? What the Liberals can make of this, who knows? They've got two seats, two out of 59 in the WA Parliament. But let me make another serious point. So McGowan goes. Alan Tudge has already left the federal parliament in the Victorian seat of Aston. Stuart Robert has resigned in the Queensland federal seat of Fadden. Scott Morrison is apparently going to resign from the seat of Cook. And there's talk in New South Wales that the Beaton, Perrottet and Keane may be looking for more lucrative pastures. You and I, the mug taxpayers, will pay for all these by-elections. Now, these people stood in the public place and said, vote for me. When they lost or suddenly got exhausted, they threw their toys out of the cot. The taxpayer should not have to pay. Either give the seat to the person who came second, or let the candidate and the political parties pay the cost of the by-elections. What do you reckon? You may remember when the media went after the former federal Liberal MP, Dr Andrew Lamming. The media promoted false claims that Dr Lamming upskirted a woman. The ABC loved it. They ran with it and won media awards in Queensland. Congratulations to the Media Entertainment and Arts Alliance Board, which has announced that the awards are being withdrawn. Don't worry about the damage done though to Dr Lemming. There'll be no apologies. You have to wonder when Aeroplane Albo gets any work done. He's back in his polluting jet. We must cut back emissions, which damage the economy, but Albo keeps flying in the government plane. He's off to Vietnam this weekend to talk to the country's leaders. More jargon. Quote, a new, don't you love, I love this stuff, a new strategy, this is why he's going, a new strategy to engage with the region over the next two decades. What the bloody hell does that mean? Fair dinkum. You and I do Zoom calls, don't we? Not for elbow. This will be a stepping stone, we're told, to quote, a comprehensive strategic partnership. We are drowning in jargon, but nothing gets done. However, 
Albo's talking about campaigning in the Gold Coast seat of Fadden, vacated by Stuart Robert. If you look up, look up the word hubris in the dictionary, H-U-B-R-I-S, you'll now see after it two words, Anthony Albanese, excessive pride or self-confidence. Albo's listing all the seats he can win from the Liberals in the next election, in WA, Tasmania, New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia. Albo, why stop there? Can someone remind the Labor Party they got 32.6% of the vote at the last election? And I'm telling you, by the time Bowen and Chalmers are finished with us, Labor won't be getting that next time. Back to PM Albanese, though, who'll argue that there are three dominant influences in his life, won't he? The Labor Party, South Sydney Rugby Leagues Club and the Catholic Church. But Albo didn't go to the funeral of Australia's Premier Catholic Cardinal Pell. And now the Labor Greens government in the ACT is to compulsorily take over Calvary Catholic Public Hospital, as I told you last week, in Canberra. Anthony Albanese just has lost his voice. He's gone missing. The Catholic Archbishop of Sydney, Anthony Fisher, has rightly asked for the federal government to intervene to protect religious freedom and reassure organisations that they'll not have contracts for health and aged care ripped up. But Albo's gone missing, off to Vietnam. He's lost his voice. So which Catholic school or nursing home will be next? If a tin pot government in the ACT can rip up a contract of a religious public hospital and get away with it, imagine what signal it sends to the real bully boys of the Labor Party, like Daniel Andrews and co. Where's your voice, Albo? Huh? I thought the Catholic Church coursed through your veins. Talking about bully boys, well done to Deputy Federal Leader, uh, Liberal Leader Susan Lee. The government's constitution alteration bill passed in the federal parliament today, which is fairly meaningless. It just means that the referendum will go ahead. Now it's up to us. But well done, Susan Lee, when she said, and I quote, it's not okay for the prime minister to bully you into a decision. It's time for the prime minister to stop the insults, the name calling, the moral blackmail. That's what will divide our country. That is what will tear at the fabric of our beautiful nation, she said. Well done, Susan. And let me add, that's why polling shows the public won't be bullied and they'll vote no. Janet Albrechtson, another magnificent Australian lady, is most probably unaware of the remarkable contributions her writing is making to public debate. Last week, remember, a Supreme Court judge publicly attacked a Supreme Court judge attacked a federal National Party MP, Pat Conaghan, who had made an excellent personal and reasoned speech to the federal parliament on The Voice, on opposing The Voice. Janet Albrechtson, a splendid writer and a lawyer, asked what causes, quote, apparently rational people to lose all objectivity, wallow in sentimentality and engage in irrational overreach. Unquote. Well, it's worse than that. This is a judge you see of the Supreme Court of New South Wales, as Janet writes, adding a dose of emotional abuse and accusing this MP of, quote, depths of paternalism and racism that oozes from your words. And as Janet Albrechtson writes, this is not one, what one expects from a dispassionate and careful legal observer. But may you and I ask, when you appear in court, before such a man as Judge Harrison, what hidden biases do you encounter, given the attack that is launched on this federal MP? 
with the judge talking about depths of paternalism and racism oozing from your words, simply because you dared to make an argument for the no case. Then you've got this corporate guru, Michael Cheney, saying, if you vote no, you'll betray the Australian people. So presumably, when the distinguished constitutional lawyers like the late David Jackson and the former High Court Justice Ian Callanan expressed constitutional doubt about the voice, they too, are they, betraying the Australian people? I think Michael Cheney would be served by getting back into his rocking chair. And remember all the headlines sponsored again by the ABC that senior coaches at the Hawthorne AFL club were accused of racism? The impact on people like Alastair Clarks and Chris Fagan and Jason Burt has been emotionally and psychologically damaging. Well, the AFL conducted an independent investigation. It wound up yesterday with no adverse findings against the code, the coaches or the club staff. But our ABC again published the allegations, stuff was leaked to the press, and Chris Fagan, one of the coaches named, rightly said that, quote, these are fine men and they've been publicly shamed by false allegations. But the ABC, again, goes on its merry way. I spoke to Peter Dutton yesterday about the cost of living, as it applies to young Australians indoctrinated with racism, gender dysphoria and so-called climate change. Now, this gender identity issue is massive. The number of children claiming to experience gender dysphoria in Australia is rising, such that the top Victorian family law barrister, Belle Lane, has warned authorities that they risk contributing to, quote, the worst medical scandal in 100 years, unquote. We're talking about children utterly confused and seeking help, families traumatised because they haven't been consulted, Teenagers around the country being treated with puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones at gender clinics in children's hospital, house hospitals as they medically transition gender. And when it happens, no turning back. In one instance in Victoria, school authorities had encouraged a young girl to use a boy's name in the classroom and transition without having any contact with parents about what was going on. A culture of secrecy, coupled to a lack of transparency. Children and parents in distress. This is why I raised this with Peter Dutton last night. This is the real cost of living to young people today. And Peter Dutton, I hope, will address this issue. I mean, someone has to. By the way, don't believe the political tide will turn. Uh, sorry, don't believe the political tide won't turn. We've seen it turn Italy. Now in Spain, where the ruling Socialist Party Prime Minister tries to save his political career by calling a snap general election, you see, his party was flogged by the Conservatives in local elections at the weekend. People do wake up. And tonight, if you're a Queenslander or a New South Welshman, the blood will run hot and the heart will reach new levels of palpitation. Rugby League State of Origin Game 1 is being played in Adelaide. Apparently not all the seats are sold. I suppose that's another story. But for someone like me, born in Western Queensland, I'm a Maroons man. I think the coach, Billy Slater, has done a colossal job with Queensland. The former fullback, he was a brilliant fullback, he's chosen an electrifying 20-year-old Reese Walsh to play his first state of origin game at the spot Billy knows, fullback. He was going to be chosen in 2021 at the age of 18, born on the Gold Coast, 20 years of age, turn in and cheer for the, <laughs> oh, don't throw stones at me. Cheer for the boys north of the border. I'll be back shortly. 
Many of you know that I have long argued that one of the most shameful chapters in the history of our involvement in theatres of war can be described in three words, the Brereton Report. This is a 2020 report by the Inspector General of the Australian Defence Force, one Brereton, Paul Brereton, regarding alleged war crimes by Australian Special Forces in Afghanistan. You will also recall that this was another ABC job and acting on hearsay and hardly credible evidence, servicemen from Afghanistan via the Brereton Report became, by inference, guilty, all of them. Guilty without walking up the steps of a court of law. Brereton happens to be Major General Paul Brereton, a judge in the New South Wales Supreme Court and an Army Reserve officer. One wonders whether his identification with the Epauletten Starched Shirt Brigade at the head of Australia's Defence Forces would provide the objectivity that should exist in these circumstances, but I'll leave that for another day. You may also remember at the time that the Brereton Report was made public, the public utterances of Prime Minister Morrison played into Chinese hands. China loved the international media attention that our soldiers were murdering Afghan soldiers and prisoners, so the Brereton Report argued. But before the Prime Minister Morrison had read the report, alleging, quote, disgraceful and a profound betrayal of Australian Defence Force's professional standards and expectations, unquote. Prime Minister Morrison described the report's conclusions as brutal truths. Morrison hadn't even read the report. But this led to all sorts of apologies to Afghanistan from top politicians and the top military brass. We sucked up, we apologised, we ingratiated ourselves to Afghanistan leadership over unproven allegations inspired, of course, by an ABC report. Then the Defence Force Chief, Angus Campbell, talked about stripping all, all our special forces of their medals. The new Defence Minister in the Morrison government, Peter Dutton, there's this man again, hey, don't we need a cop on the beat? Peter Dutton stopped this from happening. Nonetheless, men who put their lives on the line, and I've spoken to many of them, and their wives to serve in Afghanistan came home and were virtually terrorised. They were dismissed. Their families treated like criminals, and I mean that. Treated like homes raided, possessions taken. Unbelievable. And now this Angus Campbell's at it again. He wants to remove awards. He's had a go again. You see, new government. He wants to remove awards from some soldiers who held command positions in the Afghanistan war following the unproven findings of the Brereton Inquiry. Nothing's been proven against these men, but early this month we heard that Campbell had written to several current and former Australian Defence Force members informing them that their honours for distinguished and conspicuous service on warlike operations could soon be cancelled. Campbell, the Chief of Defence, declared his quote, consideration, this will ever said, consideration of your command accountability is now closed. And Campbell told these men, men of war, he'd referred the termination of their decorations to the Defence Minister, Richard Miles. Now, Richard Miles is a decent man. He should throw the Campbell correspondence in the bin. But you see, here is the rub of the Brereton Report. Digest this. Inspector General Brereton used immunity from prosecution to obtain evidence. Could this hairy-chested Campbell tell us how many soldiers who were subjected to aggressive and intimidating questions while at the same time suffering from PTSD, how many have since committed suicide? Tell us, Mr. Campbell, was immunity from prosecution used to obtain evidence? 
Tell us, General Campbell, were there criminally implicated informants desperate for get-out-of-jail immunity deal, offering the Brereton inquiry evidence against others, which the inquiry was willing to hear, evidence against others to save their own skin? And if the politicians want brutal truths, tell the nation how many witnesses gave evidence to these hearings with the assurance that their evidence could not be used against them. You won't hear this stuff from Campbell and the Starch Shirt Brigade. Were any admitted war criminals given or offered immunity in return for their cooperation with the Brereton Inquiry to secure evidence against any other soldier? But now to the real guts of the issue. The Amashita Standard is enshrined in the Geneva Convention to which Australia is a signatory. It says simply, quote, a commander may be held accountable for crimes, there it is on your screen, committed by his troops, even if he did not order them, did not know about them, or did not have the means to stop them. So that means the highest ranking officer is accountable for and should be prosecuted and convicted of the crimes of every officer and soldier under his command, even if he or she is unaware of that crime. How clear is that? So during the 11 years our army was in Afghanistan, I could list the senior commanders, but one of them was Campbell, the chief of the Defence Force. So according to the Amashita standard, Campbell is just as guilty as a convicted soldier. General Campbell is now chief of the Defence Force. He wants to strip soldiers of their Distinguished Service Awards, but he was commander of the Middle East operations in 2011, Joint Task Force 633, when some of the alleged Special Forces atrocities and the alleged murder of some of the 39 prisoners or civilians are alleged to have occurred. So what's the fate of these two generals, General Yamashita? He was not accused, a Japanese general, accused of personally committing any crime 10 days before the American invasion of the Philippines. Nor could it be proven that he knew of the atrocities committed by anybody under his command. But General Yamashita was condemned as a war criminal and hanged on February 23, 1946. What of General Campbell, the Defence Force Chief, who wants to remove awards from soldiers who held command positions in the Afghanistan war. He's been exonerated in the Brereton Report. Why? Oh, he was too remote from the field operations to have a sufficient degree of command and control. Not as only this utterly against the principles of the Amashita standard, but not why then was Campbell awarded and wears the Distinguished Service Cross for his role in the Middle East, including Afghanistan. And he wears the Infantry Combat Badge. And his citation reads, for distinguished command and leadership in action as Commander Joint Task Force 633 on Operation Slipper from January 2011 to December 2011. Is my brain failing me? Campbell receives awards for leadership and command of operations while able to deny any knowledge of those operations. This beggars belief. As one of my correspondents wrote to me, Sergeant Schultz in Hogan's Heroes. He's obviously not a comedy character after all. Ignore reality and scapegoat everyone else. Bring in General Campbell. 
If Campbell wants to treat our special men who went to war in this threatening and disgraceful way, then the Defence Minister Richard Miles must hold Campbell to the Yamashita standard upheld by the US Supreme Court, embedded in the Geneva Convention to which we are a signatory, that a commander is accountable for crimes committed by his troops, even if he did not order them. If the two-bob General Campbell, starched shirts and medals readily displayed, wants to punish our troops who put their lives on the line, then the Government of Australia, a signatory to the Yamashita standard, must see that Campbell cops the same treatment that he's dishing out to our soldiers. And how credible, therefore, is the Brett Report. Throw our soldiers under the bus, but all those generals and brigadiers allegedly in command in Afghanistan keep their distinguished service crosses. Brett wants you to believe they weren't in command at all. The Defence Force have a reputation as cover-up merchants. Richard Miles, the Defence Minister, seems a decent man. The Defence Chief Campbell should be sacked and submitted to the same humiliating treatment as he now wants to dish out to his soldiers. Well, look, we've been talking here, haven't we, about debt ceilings in America. The one person in the Albanese government with a genuine concern about debt ceilings is the Minister for Government Services and the Minister for the National Disability Insurance Scheme, Bill Shorten. Since I'll speak to him shortly, I have to be honest, and I have warned him about this anyway, and repeat what I've said many times before on this program. Albo is Prime Minister because Bill Shorten isn't. And Bill Shorten isn't because he had a shadow treasurer, Chris Bowen, who took a divisive and punitive tax policy to a federal election and then told the voters that if they didn't like it, don't vote for us. Scott Morrison fell over the finishing line, as you know, in what even Morrison described as a miracle victory. Now, the same Bowen is presiding over another policy disaster, pretending we can get to 43% carbon dioxide emission reductions by 2030 by, amongst other things, sticking up 22,500 watt solar panels every day. This is what he said for eight years. 47 megawatt wind turbines every month for seven years and tens of thousands of kilometres of additional transmission lines. What do they say? A penny for your thoughts. I won't ask. Mr Shorten, what he makes of that. But in my view, Bill Shorten has arguably the most difficult job in government. What should be potentially rewarding to those in need, those with a disability, has now turned into a financial nightmare. Within four years, the figures are staggering. The NDIS will be costing the taxpayer over $51 billion, 51,000 million, if you can believe the budget. And by comparison, the costs, for example, of Medicare will be 35, point billion, uh, 35 billion, that's by 25, 26, and aged care, say, 24.7. Or put another way, the Albanese government has indicated its commitment to $166 billion over the next four years. That's more than 8.8 billion than was anticipated in the last coalition budget. This is a monumental ministerial challenge, but if anyone can get on top of it, it is Bill Shorten. He's been a minister in the Rudd-Gillard years, an assistant treasurer, a minister for financial services and superannuation, minister for workplace relations, and indeed a minister for education. And he did win the leadership of the Labor Party in 2013, beating Anthony Albanese. He joins me, Bill Shorten, thank you for your time. Just a simple question, I suppose, how do you get on top of this spiralling cost? Well, thank you very much for your introduction about me and we'll just agree to disagree about Chris and climate change, but let's go to the NDIS. The NDIS is here to stay. I think that if we 
ask of every decision we make in terms of its administration, what's in the best interests of the participants, then I think we can um, reduce the rate of cost growth. I think we can get better outcomes for participants. It's all about making sure that every dollar gets through to the people for whom the scheme was originally designed. Uh, that is the sweet spot of reform, not dumping a whole lot of change on people with profound disabilities, but working with them. People with profound disabilities in their families and the people who love them, they don't want to see money wasted. They don't want to be treated as human ATMs. They don't want to be treated as um, an easy mark for people to gouge prices off. So I'm confident we can get there by making sure that every decision is about the best interest of the participant and passing that test is every dollar getting to the people for whom the scheme was originally designed. I'm glad you told, call them participants and not clients. God, I hate that word, clients. Bill, is there still some confusion about who qualifies? I mean, if the NDIS provides, as we understand it does, those with a permanent and significant disability, mm -hmm. financial support to build capacity, increase independence, and establish stronger mm -hmm. connections with their community. Are these such subjective criteria that it is difficult to determine eligibility? We've got a review underway, which will report no later than October. Um, I don't think the criteria is a deal breaker. In other words, I think we can have clarity. I don't think there's always clarity at the moment, to be fair. Part of the problem is, um, well, part of the challenge, I should say, is that the scheme is changing people's lives. Uh, and for literally hundreds of thousands of people with profound and severe disability who need support with some of the basics of living and, 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 living and uh, fulfilling their own lives, uh, it's doing a great job. But what's happening is that I think there's several tensions in the scheme which need to be resolved. The recent budget, um, we have announced a series of reforms, which I think will slow down the acceleration of cost growth, but also in particular give a better participant experience. So I, the criteria are there. One thing we could do is invest in the actual agency, the planners who make decisions. Uh, they, You'd be interested to know, Alan, that in 2017, my predecessors capped the number of people working at the agency at about 4,000 people when there was 170,000 participants. Mm. Now there's 590,000 and you've got the same number of direct staff. So what that leads to is um, rushed decisions, inconsistent decisions, not transparent decisions. One of the other big problems we have to deal with is that almost half the people in the scheme are kids. Now, what they're getting is not very expensive. I, but what happens is, and I don't blame parents, if your child, your beautiful, precious baby at three and at four has a developmental delay, the only option available for families is the NDIS. And that was never the intention. So I think there are opportunities to uh, provide support for families outside of the NDIS, working with the states who've to some extent handed over all responsibility to the feds. And I think we can, you know, again, I, that's one of the sweet spots of reform. Isn't it refreshing to listen to a minister who knows what he's talking about? Uh, no notes, no nothing. This bloke's done some homework on all this. I love the fact that you use the word investment. That really generates a lot of hope amongst families. So you're saying we're not spending money on these people, we're investing in them so that they will become productive yeah. in the workforce eventually. Yeah, I, we shouldn't suffer from the tyranny of low expectations. Here's some money, bugger off, and we'll forget about you. 
families with little children with developmental delay, they just want their kids to have the best chance of an education. Um, the NDIs can't become the reserve education system for uh, a schooling system mm. to treat kids with disabilities is too hard. Talk to any family of a child who might have a child with a learning delay or be on the autism spectrum, and quite often they're made to feel isolated or bullies when they demand their kid not be picked on, when they want just some time for their child's education. So it takes, what was that old, there's that old saying that it takes a village to raise a child. Well, it takes a community to make sure that people with disability aren't excluded. So mm. the NDIS is great and we need to make sure the scallywags, the shonks, the frauds are kicked out of the, you know, the service providers who are doing the wrong thing are kicked out. But we also need to recognise that the scheme was never meant to replace families. It was never meant to replace the school system, the hospital system. We've just got to start saying, what are the outcomes we want for people? Like take, for instance, vocational education, school leavers. If you're a kid with a disability, um, you can't just say in year 12, well, do you want to go to a day service? You've got to be thinking about how you set this kid up in life from year seven and year eight, rather than making them an afterthought. Fantastic. Very encouraging thought to families who are watching. I, I just, the fig, the numbers, the numbers minister just really sort of knocked me around. I mean, I was reading that 2017 mm. Productivity Commission report before I spoke to you, where the participant numbers mm. were at that stage, this is 2017, 580,000 estimated by 2030. Five, they're big numbers, aren't they? Are your figures by 2030 more or less than that? More, but... I think there is things we can do. But let's talk about reform in this country, and that's something which you talk about, a lot of your viewers talk about, people talk about generally. Is reform too hard? And I don't think it is. But you notice that in all my language, because it's the way I think it's my values, this scheme is a good idea. It is making life-changing impacts on people. You shouldn't be just treated as a sort of second-class person because a member of your family has a disability. But what we need to do is if we can convince people with disability that our changes are not about whacking them over the head with a sort of policy club and saying, just have cop, you know, the basic services and just put up with your lot in life. If, the, if they think that we're interested in them and their families, they're up for change. You know, the, the scandalous behaviour where if, you, um, if you're selling a, well, I see it on websites, if you're selling a shower chair, uh, an aluminium shower chair, yeah, that's at a certain cost, might be 150 bucks. But then when you put the word NDIS in front of it, it's then $600. Yes, that's right. We've got to stop this notion that people with the NDIS are uh, there to subsidise putting the veranda around the, you know, the, the beach house for the, yes. for the service provider. How do you manage when you go into the Expenditure Review Committee and, or even into a full Cabinet meeting and mm. you're trying to persuade people that the costs of this scheme over the next eight will have a significant impact on our economy. I see the budget forecast say the NDIS will increase gross debt by 3.3 percentage points of GDP by mm. 2030. Now, last year you created this fraud task force, 137 mm. million. How are you going with that? Because the incidence of fraud is shameful, isn't it? Crooks and all of these people taking money. Well, just on the, on the macro. Yeah. For every dollar we spend, it's generating jobs in the economy, it's generating outcomes. So it's not just money which is disappearing offshore to a tax haven. It's, it's generating economic activity. 
But going to your issue about fraud, um, whatever, you know, some of your viewers might say, I would say this about the previous government, but they had no padlock on the back door of the scheme. In fact, there was no back door. There was no back wall. Um, it was help yourself time. Invoices are not checked sufficiently. Mm. So I set up a fraud fusion task force, which you're referring to, mm. getting different government agencies to talk to each other because this scheme has attracted um, some of the people who are in the long daycare industry, some of the people who are in the private vocational education industry, just scammers. And so what we've done for the first time is invested resources into checking the invoices into, you know, in an industrial way, into getting departments to talk to departments to compare director numbers and their, you know, their, their ABNs. And we can find out the shonks, but with the effort hadn't been put in in the past, we've now got 39 active investigations. We're now actively looking at payments covering nearly a billion dollars. I'm not saying all the billions been inappropriately paid, but we're now beginning to scale up and yes. get rid of the early but movers the numbers, who came into they, this industry uh, like low the, the numbers are big, aren't they? I was reading what Michael Phelan had said, who who's uh, yeah. arguing that, you know, up to 20% of the outlays could be hived off. And he also said, did he not, and this is immensely disturbing, that a whole lot of people in this industry, if I could use it that way, and he nominated mm. doctors, he talked about providers, he talked about accountants, he even talked about lawyers, providing advice, aiding and abetting this ripping off of the scheme. Are you yeah. convinced that you've got structures in place that is preventing that or will prevent it? I'm convinced that we're building the structures that will prevent it. But I'm not convinced the structures have been there and we're still building them. And it should have happened, you know, over the last number of years as the scheme grew, but it was neglected as an issue. Um, I'll give you as an example of what we're starting to do. We have, um, I commissioned a report. I met five whistleblowers who were nurses and quite often they were sort of the formerly the district nurses. They would go out and visit people with profound disability and they would keep an eye on them. What's happened is these five whistleblower nurses were cut off from a range of their most vulnerable clients who had big packages of support. And what's happened is Shonky service providers are signing up the vulnerable people, offering them donuts or cigarettes yeah, or yeah, cash, yeah. sign over all access to me, the Shonky service provider, and then these people are essentially being human trafficked. They're being mined their accounts. So these whistleblowers spoke to me late last year. I met with them. I've commissioned a report by the Mental Health Legal Service in Melbourne. And it shows shoddy practices in boarding houses. Now, some boarding houses are good, but they're often the places of last resort for homeless people with uh, intellectual disability. People who've come out of jail who, frankly, uh, have got major developmental delays. And these people are just getting exploited by shonky service providers. Terrible. Now, Terrible. we're just, it's just a lot of work to crack down on these, uh, on these rogues. What but about we this are review? Starting and, Sorry, hmm. go on, Bill. Sorry. We are starting to do it. And I just want to reassure people who say, oh, that's a disgrace. It is a disgrace. It's not, oh, there's yeah. a lot of good service providers and, and the people on the scheme, you know, 99.9% .9 of fed income mm. people. But there's certainly when there's government money, there's this age-old Australian tradition, maybe from the rum core on, where it's government money, yes. let's rip a bit yes. off for ourselves. I notice in this review that you've commissioned, there's a report today mm. which is saying that you'll have to reconsider eligibility criteria for the scheme and prioritise <coughs> early intervention for autistic children. And this was the point you just made, mm. to prevent, quote, increased reliance on the NDIS throughout their lives. 
It seems that this review co-chair, Professor, uh, Professor Bonnie Hardy, is talking about big mm. shifts in policy and the definition, and this comes back to my first question to you, of reasonable mm. and necessary support. And he says the definition of reasonable and necessary had become deeply contested. Uh, you have the final say. Mm. How do you decide what is reasonable and what is necessary? Well, first of all, I've appointed Bruce, and he's excellent. He's with another co-chair, Lisa Paul. I've got a reference committee of senior disability rights advocates. So we're not... I want to say to the listeners who are worried that, does this mean that my kid loses their package? No, that's not what we're talking about. I think there is a requirement for greater clarity about eligibility. I don't think that there's hundreds of thousands of people on the scheme who shouldn't be there. This is not about taking, um, you know, the, the, the secateurs to every person's package and just blanket reduction. But I do think that we need to make sure that we're taking expert advice. So Bruce has released, uh, or the review's released a couple of discussion papers and that's the status of them. Nothing's set in, set in stone. Uh, but what we are saying, what he is saying is we should, when someone's getting a therapy for autism, it should be a evidence-based therapy, mm. not, dare I say it, crystals. Yes. Yes. I mean, so uh, reasonable just, and necessary. Is, yeah. when, when, I, I view this scheme like Medicare. I don't think it should be means tested. I don't think, you know, if you're disabled, you're disabled. That's just a fact. And you, you can't be disabled no. for 10 months of the year, then for two months go without because of a financial no. budget constraint. What about, but what about? We, uh, under Medicare, I'll finish this point. Yeah, sorry. sorry. Under Medicare, you can't take any drug. You can only get the, the drugs which are approved. Hmm. So I do think that we need to. It won't be a politician who decides what's reasonable and necessary, but we should have evidence for what we determine is reasonable and necessary. See, when you evidence. say reasonable and necessary, I'm thinking about ADHD. I mean, these days we mm. tend to sort of, we've got a title and an acronym for every kind of condition, but yeah, I see that... I don't think that we should just say automatically diagnosis equals entry to the scheme. Yes. Like, I accept that people may have ADHD, but I'm not proposing that... Once you have that diagnosis, you're automatically eligible for the scheme. It's the impact of the disability on you. Well, not every person with a disability is on the scheme. There's lots of people who choose not to be on the scheme because, frankly, even though they've got a very clear disability, they don't need fundamental assistance with being able to have a fulfilling life. So I think that the more we look at an individual's circumstances and understand how that plays out, on top of the disability. And again, that doesn't mean me, I'm not being sort of obtuse. I'm not saying if you are a double amputee, I get that you need assistance. Mm. But I'm just saying, just slavishly saying diagnosis alone should dictate entry to the scheme, I think Very good. is not Very good. what we were intending. Very good. So what do you say about what do you say about the trend of disabled people? Uh, and particularly young people winding up in residential aged care? Now, I read that at any one point there were 4,000 people with disabilities under the age of 65 living in residential mm. care. Is that still the case? And is the waiting it time... There's been a reduction. Yeah, go on. To be fair to the old government, they accepted the recommendation, was one of the first recommendations of the Royal Commission into Aged Care that young people should be in age-appropriate accommodation. So some of that's happened. But part of our challenge is if you are um, in a country town... You mightn't have a whole lot of disability resources there. 
So mm. aged care, you put your loved one in aged care because at least they can get some care. Uh, we're committed to trying to get pe- give people choices. Mm. Uh, it's, and I, this is one of the early triggers for the NDIS. I met, I had a friend who I went to university with him, uh, Chris Nolan, and I'd lost touch with him, but he was a brilliant fella, set up the Meredith Music Festival, great footballer, great lawyer, handsome as, you know, just a lovely bloke with everything in front of him. He went to Vietnam and he got a, a, a very rare disease and it basically trapped him inside his body. And his mother, who's a very great advocate, Mary, I reconnected when I first got into Parliament because they couldn't find anywhere for him to live. Mm. And then I saw what Young Care were doing and I've seen what, uh, there's a great lady, uh, Bromma Morecambe, who worked with the MS Society, who's trying to get uh, an Alan Blackwood. So these people educated me 15 years ago that we need to give accommodation options to people which aren't mm. just listening to Frank Sinatra and yeah. with a bunch of 80-year-olds, as much as that's great, and I listen to Frank Sinatra, so no hate <laughs> mail from the Frank lovers. I love Frank, all blue eyes, but we should give people choices. Yes. But if the waiting uh, time, so Bill, Bill Shorten, if the waiting time for disabled people to be discharged from hospital mm. is, as I understand, about 160 days, where then do these people go? Yeah, well, it's, that is a scandal. And that was the waiting time measured, for example, in Victoria before the last election. I'm pleased to tell you that when I became minister, we started measuring it. No one used to measure the waiting time of people who are eligible for NDIS medically fit for discharge but stuck in hospital. We've now got it down to about 30 days. Uh, so there's uh, the, now what's happened is having, you know, when you build a, a road to solve a traffic jam, you sometimes move the traffic jam a bit further along <laughs> yeah, the road. That's right. What we're now discovering is we're sorting out our bureaucracy and red tape in the agency, which is good. I gave um, local decision makers more power to just tick or no rather than having committees stroking their chins for day forever and a day. But now we've got to look at housing options, medium-term accommodation and and forever housing for people. And we have reduced the waiting time by about over four months, uh, which is much better for people. But now we've got to make sure that there's housing available for people to move into. On that, I mean, we could talk all night. You're doing outstandingly in presenting this case. It's a very difficult area. There's just, I'd ask you two questions to wind this up and I hope we can talk Mm. again. Are there adequate beds as I speak to you now tonight, are there adequate beds in disability care and do service providers have spare capacity? There's not enough adequate beds, but sometimes there is spare capacity as well. In other words, what's happened is some of the developers have built disability accommodation, some of the states handed over legacy stock, but the housing they're building is not appropriate for the people who need them. Not everyone wants to go and live with two strangers in a, you know, in a three bedroom house with a carer. Mm. And not everyone wants to go and live 200 kilometres away from their family. So Mm. there is, in my opinion, an inefficient allocation. So we do have sometimes a surplus of beds, but what we also have is a shortage of uh, overall housing options. Mm. So do you understand that oh, yes. it's both at the same time and that's very part of difficult. the challenge of very, supporting very, independent Very, very difficult. I said that was the last question. I'll ask one more. Many service providers write to me, tell me that mm. they're running at a loss. Uh, in one survey, I said about yeah. 70% of them. Um, how do you account for that? I mean, what the service provider is asked to provide uh, sometimes is beyond their capacity to afford. Well, and if that's the case, then... The thing is... 
I'm sure you get those letters, and I do too. But one of the things which I'm grappling with is you've also said there's more money being invested in disability support than ever in the history of the country. So I think there is enough money in the system. But what we are doing is legitimate service providers are finding it hard to, you know, make a surplus at all. That's why we're having the review. I don't have all the answers tonight mm. or today for no. your show. No. I accept that legitimate providers are finding it hard. Yeah. But there's, a, I, there's more money in the system than there's ever been before. Mm. So I'm not sure it's a lack of money, but it goes back to that very first test which I said to you governs what I'm doing and thinking about. What's the best interest of the participant and is every dollar in the scheme getting through to the people for whom it's meant to be spent? Mm. So I do believe there's sort of two rounds of reform. If I can eliminate some of the low-hanging fruit, the waste, the stupidity, the red tape, the lack of knowledge, um, the fraud. I think that'll give us breathing room to get down to the fundamentals of how do we provide around-the-clock care in an individualised setting which is sustainable. Now, I think it is. Good on you. I'm sure it is. Good on you. I think you're doing a wonderful job in a very, very difficult environment. So we do thank you. There's a whole heap of people out there are very grateful for the fact that you're not, haven't got bureaucrats around. You are running the show and you're getting on top of the issues. Look, as things develop, I hope we can talk again. I'm grateful for the interest. I just say to your listeners who, I want the scheme to be the best scheme in the world. I don't think I have a minute to waste. Good on you. Good so on you. it's a privilege. Good on. Thank you so much for your time. There he is, Bill Shorten. Good on you. It uh, fills you with hope, doesn't it? To all your parents and family members out there, I think the show's in good hands, but he concedes, of course, there's a lot to be done. Well, I spoke last night about the crisis in America, either debt ceiling. I'll get an update on that from Peggy in a minute because the vote on the legislation is Wednesday, American time. It's approximately 6 a.m. Washington time. And this crisis goes to the vote in a matter of hours. But this is the point. As I said to Dave Sharma last night, this gives the perception internationally of a weak and divided America. And that's because the country is leadless. As I said last night, this is a really simple story. If you want to stay within the debt limit, you spend no more than you earn. But this debt ceiling in America in 100 years, I made this point last night, but it needs to be repeated. It's gone from 408 billion in 1922 to 30.9 trillion, 100 years on 2022. And the Democrats want no spending cuts. The Republican Speaker Kevin McCarthy has to deal with Joe Biden. Well. Listen to this Joe Biden talking last week about Nancy Pelosi, the former speaker. I'll make the point that Pelosi was born in 1940. Listen to this. Biden says that Nancy Pelosi, quote, helped rescue the economy in the Great Depression. Listen to this. And I have to say that it really angers me that the media and politicians, not just Americans, that the world allow this incoherent fool to be leading the world's democracies. And the reason they can't send him to the appropriate aged care home is that Kamala Harris is the alternative. Anyway, have a listen to Biden here. With Nancy leading the way, you never had to worry about whether the bill would pass. She said she had the votes. She had the votes every time. And she had the votes so many life-changing pieces of legislation. 
She helped rescue the economy in the Great Depression. Pat what? What? Nancy Pelosi, quote, helped create the economy, helped rescue the economy in the Great Depression. The Great Depression was this massive economic shock, as you know, before Pelosi was born from 1929 to 1939, where global unemployment went to 24.9%. Let's bring in Peggy from America. Peggy, thank you again for your time. Honestly, I just, I'm an Australian, you're an American. I just find this unbelievably annoying and embarrassing. Um, but the Americans seem to cop it, the media don't respond. Well, it's frustrating, it is embarrassing, and the American people deserve and should demand better, and hopefully we'll make a better choice. Election has, elections have consequences moving forward. But to your point about the debt limit, you know, Kevin McCarthy, he has been trying to get Joe Biden to the negotiating table for months, and he's refused to do it until recently, and he basically said, I'm not going to negotiate. But Kevin McCarthy has done pretty well for himself. He's gotten spending cuts and also has been able to push through a work requirement. Now, both of these things are something that are wildly popular with the American people. They think that an able-bodied person who's getting government benefits, who does not have minor dependents, should have to work at least a little bit to get government aid. And so Kevin McCarthy has gotten some concessions from Joe Biden, who finally came to the table recently. Yes, just on that, uh, I note that the Republicans wanted to cut spending to 2022 levels, and that would have cut the spending by $131 billion. Now, I would have thought the Democrats were at their most weak in this arrangement, but the Republicans didn't manage to secure that, did they? Well, they did get some concessions on spending cuts, or at least returning it to pre-COVID levels, but Speaker McCarthy has got a fight on his hands, not only with the Democrats, but he's going to have a fight on the right as well. The House Freedom Caucus, many members have said that they're not going to vote for this because they don't think it goes far enough, even though he has been able to, while improving the debt ceiling increase so that we don't default on our debts, have some spending cuts, actually claw back some of the COVID money that's spent. Um, put an end to some of the IRS additional funding that's going through. He actually got a gas pipeline approved. So there are some big wins for the Republicans, but will McCarthy be able to get it through his own yes, party right. before it goes that's to right. a full vote? See, and the other thing is with an election coming up next year, I, I thought it was quite surprising that the Republicans conceded that there will be no debt ceiling consideration because this is a two-year thing until 2025. And then if you take the fact that the Democrats haven't conceded, it seems, on the $131 billion of cuts, it has the prospect or potential to create a much more favourable economic environment for the Democrats going into the presidential election than they really deserve. Well, this is kicking the can down the road as we continue to do. And this is why both parties are very unpopular across most of the country. We know that every American business and every household has to sit around either the board conference room or the dining room table and balance their own budget. And when we see our leaders squandering the American taxpayers' money and not being good stewards of it and not willing to make the same cuts or concessions that we as the American people have to do daily, then it's really frustrating and disheartening and shows that they're not being good stewards of the taxpayers' money mm -hmm. and not treating it as money as if it's their own. Okay, just one final thing here. Uh, 
Janet Yellen has said June 5 is the deadline. Basically, uh, you forfeit, you run out of money, we can't pay our bills, an international embarrassment and so on. Now, if this goes through the House when they vote, it then has to go to the Senate. And my reading of it is there could be procedural difficulties there in the Senate. Uh, are you confident that when this bill for raising the debt ceiling goes to both houses, that both houses will approve without any delay, which would a delay would of course prejudice the very concerns that have been expressed in the last couple of days. Well, nothing ever goes smoothly through Congress. There always are delays, but your key point was procedural delays. And so they control all of that. The Democrats, of course, control the Senate. But Janet Yellen has had her own procedural housekeeping or bookkeeping maneuvers of her own. She said June 1st, and then she said June 5th. We know there's some wiggle room on this. And so Janet Yellen is actually making the problem worse by drawing these hard lines in the sand where there is some room for negotiation mm. and movement on the payment of those debts, mm. whether it's the 5th or the 10th, there's, there's it's, room. It's a massive issue. The, the figures are eye-watering. Basically, when all this happened, I'm just saying to our viewers, when all this happened in 2011, then the agreement was made with both houses that they would reduce spending by 0.7% of GDP. I think the arrangement overnight here between Kevin McCarthy and whoever is Biden, Biden would understand, as I said last night, he thinks the debt ceiling is something at the top of the White House, uh, the Oval Office, but uh, this is now 0.2. So it's far less a reduction in spending. We've got this problem here in Australia. I raised this last night with, uh, with Dave Sharma because when Peter Costello was treasurer of this country, there was no debt ceiling because there was no debt. And now, of course, you've got these lunatics like Bowen and others putting us into all well, sorts of Well, now they've pushed it off. We know this new debt limit is going to be coming in a couple of years. And what's going to happen? Yep. The exact same thing. You yeah, know, they'll absolutely. wait till the very absolutely. last minute, yeah. light the house on fire and mm, not know quiet. how to put it out. Yeah, no no heart to, to reduce spending at all. And it's borrowed money. Peggy, look, I know we focus on Biden uh, while effort is being made in America to discredit, discredit Donald Trump. And I just make this point, I've made it many times, I don't apologise for making it again. Every institution in America, it seems, has been stood on its head to disqualify Trump's presidential candidature. Yet the real threat to our institutions and our values lies in, I said this last night, this massive campaign of the left to use the courts, Peggy and I have covered that, the FBI, we covered that, the Department of Justice, there's the Durham report, relentlessly to attack Trump and ignore Biden. Well, in a graduation address to students, at Howard University last week, Biden played the race card. He called, this is unbelievable, I think. If anyone else did this, if Trump did this, all hell would break loose. He called white supremacy, now think of those words, I don't even know what that is, white supremacy, quote, the most dangerous threat to the nation. He said to graduates, stand up against the poison, white supremacy is the single most dangerous terrorist threat in our homeland. Now, I just should point out before I go to Peggy for her comment, these are graduating students at Howard University, which is a private university in Washington, a high research university. They applauded, but it is what they call an HBCU. That is an historically black college and university. So Biden was pandering to the audience, denigrating whiteness while seeking to pretend he's battling against racism. Peggy. How come this bloke isn't called out? 
Well, black people in America are being used as political pawns and they're smart as anybody else, regardless of how he insults them. And this man who ran on being the uniter in chief is truly the divider in chief. Black America, all of America, we see through the policies of Joe Biden. We know how they're harming our communities, our families, our schools, our societies. And I think that Black America will refuse to be pawns anymore in Joe Biden and the Democrats' party's scheme. We know that under Donald Trump, Black America did far better than they had previously through opportunity zones. He gave great opportunities for Black Americans to build businesses. And so I don't think they're going to be used as political pawns. It's an insult, an insult to all of America for the president of the United States to stand up on a stage like that and divide America. Absolutely. I mean, this bloke, I'm saying to you, this is dangerous. He'll use anything and any institution to dismantle American values. And here he is challenging these students. He said to them, redeem the soul of the nation. I mean, someone wrote this for him. Redeem the soul of the nation. I don't know what he's up to. But I note that John Miltimore, who is the editor of the Foundation for Economic Education, said, quote, The Democratic Party spent most of the 19th century and much of the 20th using overt racism to win elections. They're doing it again in the 21st century. And that is true. I raised this with Donald Trump Jr. last week, as you know, where his father said in many speeches, by viewing every issue through the lens of race, they want to impose a new segregation. And Donald Trump president said, we must not allow this to happen. He called this toxic propaganda an ideological poison, quote, dividing Americans by race in the service of political power. Peggy, this is precisely what Biden is doing at this graduation ceremony. Well, he and the Democrat Party can insist on continuing to look back and try to right these wrongs that they say have happened rather than looking forward. And, you know, part of the Republican Party's platform that we've seen be successful in so many states across America with great conservative governors is school choice. And we see that the future of Black America depends on an education. And so many young Black children are trapped in government schools, which are failing. They're graduating or not graduating, unable to read, write, without the skill set that they need. And school choice provides great opportunities for them. But the Democrat Party, the teachers unions continue to block that. And that would provide them the greatest opportunity to look forward, not back. Absolutely. I should point out to our viewers, the American Greatness Journalist. Now, American Greatness is a leading voice in America of the next generation of American conservatives. Julie Kelly wrote of Biden. She didn't miss, quote, you are saying it because you are a pathological liar propped up by the media to help fuel dangerous racial division. And of the Supreme Court, what about this? Justice Katanji Brown Jackson, whom uh, Biden boasted was the first black woman on the Supreme Court. He then at the same graduation argued of her, oh, by the way, she's brighter than the rest. And they all applauded. So Biden said, because of you, this is what he said, you turned up, you showed up when the votes counted. That is black America, he said, voted for him. But Peggy, despite being allegedly the most intelligent Supreme Court justice, the same woman Jackson, wasn't able to define the word woman when asked by a Republican senator during her confirmation hearing. Pretty bright, I'd reckon, eh? 
I mean, the American people see through this and we see through the racial division that he is trying to do. He knows that America is stronger when we're united and he knows that we're weaker when we're divided. And he continues to divide by skin color, by socioeconomic standing, by religion, by background. And it's it's not right. It's not best for the future of America and certainly doesn't provide the best opportunity, right. not only for black Americans, but for every Absolutely. American to have a right Absolutely. And then Biden said in the speech, hate never goes away. I'm telling you, there as here, it's the left promoting the hate and Biden rallying the troops. I should just say, Peggy talked about uh, the popularity of Trump versus Biden in relation to black people. There was an ABC News Washington Post poll last week. It found Biden's approval ratings with black people at 52% down from 82% at the time he took office. 27% of black voters said that definitely or probably vote for Trump. Whereas when Trump won government in 2020, it was only 12%, now 27%. Peggy, it seems that the Hunter Biden issue though, is getting closer to the White House. A new Rasmussen poll, 78% of American voters now have been, quote, following closely, the words of the poll, reports about the Hunter Biden scandal, and more than two thirds of voters believe it is a serious scandal. So where are we on this? Yeah, this is getting closer and closer to the president himself. And as much as the left has tried to tamp it down, the American people are finally being able to hear about this. You know, they're smart. They pay attention to these things when they have the opportunity to. But we know that this entire story was scuttled away without anybody actually even hearing about it, unless you listen to conservative media prior to the election. So now people are paying attention. They're realizing there is truth to what Donald Trump has said. He has been exonerated time and time again, and that the finger pointing of guilt comes right back to yeah, the well, Biden family, yeah, to the Clintons, well, the issue here, to Obama, and yeah. it's getting closer and closer well, to I mean, Joe Biden Well, this is a serious issue because the issue now is, and, and they've got documents and emails and so on, that Hunter Biden re re received, and I quote the words, preferential treatment during an internal revenue service tax investigation. Now, this has come from an internal revenue service whistleblower who argued that the Department of Justice is protecting, this is now public, what is called, quote, a high profile controversial subject since early 2020. Now, you don't have to have a PhD in forensic investigation to know that the special person is Hunter Biden. So, Peggy, the question is, who is the political appointee, quote, unquote, covering up for Hunter Biden. There's plenty of speculation that it could be Biden's Attorney General and Chief Law Officer Merrick Garland. Well, it's crazy that the closer we get to this, the more we see these third world banana republic tactics being deployed. The whistleblower from the IRS and the entire team investigating this matter that everybody knows is Hunter Biden has been removed from that investigation. And so they know that they have been um, have access to evidence that will indict not only Hunter, but possibly Joe Biden himself. They've removed them from the investigation. And so that judgment call and that call is being made from higher ups. It certainly could be Attorney General himself. We don't know yet, but it certainly looks like from the highest levels of government, mm, these right. these great yes. departments previously mm. of justice are being weaponized for political favor. Just, just imagine if that was half said 
about Donald Trump. Just imagine it. Peggy, great to talk to you. Your insights are amazing. Our viewers love you and we'll see you next week. Thank you, Alan. Here she is, Peggy Grandy in America. Well, look, before we go, and it's not such a good story, but it is a story that has to be told, because you and I often hear it from people in Struggle Street that big government and big bureaucracy and big corporations are very good at going after what's called the low-hanging fruit. The battler is easy prey. And the same battler looks on with bewilderment as to how the rich get richer. Well, here's the answer. Join a big corporation that ingratiates itself to government, advises government on tax matters, when you and I have it a hope in hell of minimising our tax, but big corporations get big money for advising government on the legitimacy of legislation that will allegedly make tight government's determination to limit tax avoidance. Except that these big outfits, consultants, also have corporate clients. So they know what government's up to. And they can charge their corporate clients a big quid to provide information to those clients that they gain by being a consultant to government. Obviously, the information's meant to be confidential. Doesn't worry this mob, Enterprise Waterhouse Coopers. Now being described as embattled professional service giant. Some might say that's a euphemism for corporate crook. It's really a simple story. It's now clear the confidentiality that should apply to important information from government to such a consultant, the confidentiality has been completely breached. Former PwC partner Peter Collins has been thrown under a bus. The former CEO, Tom Seymour, has stepped down. And PricewaterhouseCoopers say that nine partners have been directed to step down from their roles in what's called a tax leak scandal. But again, if it was a battler, the police would have him by the scruff of the neck and you'd be reading about him, you'd know his name. Oh, no, no, no such thing. We don't know who these people are. And there's a tendency to imagine, which suits big business. Look, don't, don't worry. All this is a bit too complicated for you to understand. <laughs> Don't swallow that stuff. We're dealing here with corporate grubs, cover-up merchants. Don't you love the acting CEO, Kristen Stubbins, who made a statement about this in the last couple of days? Try this for size. Quote, in relation to the breach of confidentiality, our clients were not involved in any wrongdoing and no confidential information was used to enable clients to pay less tax. Unquote. I beg your pardon. No confidential information was used to cut the tax bill of a PwC client. Well, then where was the breach of confidence? Hang on. PwC have these massively wealthy, high earning global corporate clients and PwC charges them a fortune, but they weren't giving them tax advice based on what they'd been given in confidence by the government. Can we say that again? Pricewaterhouse are advising Canberra on how to go about tax avoidance policies to improve the government's fight against tax avoidance and then allegedly using that inside information to advise their clients how to avoid these tougher tax rules. In return, Pricewaterhouse rake in big bucks. Indeed, the only way they get the big bucks as consultants to big business is to be able to provide tax advice that those businesses wouldn't get anywhere else, which helps big outfits pay as little tax as possible. And if Pricewaterhouse don't have this special knowledge gained in this way, it's now clear from government briefings, what the hell is the client getting for his money? I just love the jargon. Stubborn said that this good corporate citizen, PricewaterhouseCoopers, in 2021 prohibited, quote, market-facing partner from participating in confidential tax consultations, unquote. 
So presumably up until 2021, Pricewaterhouse were on Easy Street. Confidential tax consultations with the government, walk out that door into a room full of clients. Haven't we got news for you? The government, we're told, is going to get tough on tax avoidance, but don't worry, we know the new rules and we'll charge you a fortune to help you get around them. But it wasn't until 2021 that market-facing partners, that's partners who talk to clients, couldn't participate in these confidential tax consultations. And that's how they get rich. Big accounting firms, partners, benefits, social prestige, rich consult with the government, and the government will pay Price Waterhouse big money for their expert knowledge, and Price Waterhouse then charge the clients big bickies to pass on what they learned from government. And don't you love the story today? PricewaterhouseCoopers blocked the Australian tax officer's attempt to gather more information about PricewaterhouseCoopers' involvement in the tax leaks. That's the scandal. And they blocked that at least six years ago, prompting the tax office to report its, quote, significant concerns to the federal police in 2018. Hang on, it's 2023. How many are involved in this cover-up? Aren't we entitled to expect the federal police to put these people in the dock? And are we expected to believe nothing's happened since 2018? Remember my comment at the beginning about low-hanging fruit? The little bloke pays more tax while the big Price Waterhouse client with access to confidential information learns how to pay less and so far remain anonymous. I wonder will the battler ever learn who has been punished for what is appalling behaviour? Well, that's it from me for tonight and for this week. Thank you for your company. Don't forget, you can listen to the podcast of tonight's program from 6am tomorrow. Just go to the podcast app and search ADH TV. And remember, you can always email me, Alan Jones at ADH.TV. I'll see you next week. Hey, cheer for the Maroons tonight. Maroons. <laughs> Maroons. That's a lolly, isn't it? Cheer for the Maroons tonight. You're watching ADH. I'm Alan Jones. Good night.